Becoming an Anti-Racist, the podcast. Hi everyone, I'm your host, Dr. Mina Abdi, and in this episode, I'm joined by Professor Kehindi Andrews. Kehindi is the UK's first professor of Black Studies at Birmingham City University, where he led the establishment of the first Black Studies program in Europe. He's the chair of the Harambe Organization of Black Unity and the editor-in-chief of Make It Plain. He's the author of Back in Black and the Retelling of Black Radicalism in the 21st Century, and has recently released a new book, The New Age of Empire. It's such an honor to have Kehindi on the episode with us, and we discuss the reports by Tony Sewell, as well as many other things in relation to where we are today in conversations around race and racism and where we really need to be. Kehindi, thank you so much for joining me for this episode. How are you? Uh, good, a bit tired. There's been a lot happening recently, but yeah. Yeah. Very refreshed, maybe is the word. Definitely, definitely. Thank you so much for joining me. There's so much that we can talk about, and we will try and squeeze as much in as possible because I've been looking forward to speaking with you for so long. But let's address the issue that is the biggest issue that we're talking about at the moment today, which is the report that Tony Sewell was chairing that was released yesterday and some of the outcomes of that because I know you probably had a really busy aftermath of people reaching out to you for your responses to it there have been a lot of concerns there have been a lot of anger that's expressed rightly so what are your thoughts on the report well I mean the report is a joke isn't it I mean let's be honest (laughs) it's not it's not a it was never a genuine attempt to understand racism the whole purpose of the report was to downplay the issue of race to give the government some cover since last summer, that's what they've been saying. There's no problems in the schools, there's no problems with the police, et cetera, et cetera. And they just went and asked a bunch of institutional racism deniers to deny institutional racism. So, yeah. I mean, it's, well, that's what you would get, right? That was the purpose of it. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it was designed to fail. And you're absolutely right. They got people who, throughout their entire careers, have denied that institutional racism exists. And so before they even start to work on this piece of work, you know what the outcome is going to be. And so... Those of us that are doing this work weren't surprised by the report. I think for me, I was probably just surprised by how blatant it was, but also how much it mirrored everything that Bernard Cord said 40 years ago. Yeah, yeah no, I mean, I think... That would be the other re- problem. <laughs> yeah, the report didn't fail. It did exactly what it was supposed to do. Look at all the right-wing papers, the Express, the mm-hmm. Telegraph. They're like, oh, look, there's no racism. That's actually how they're reporting it. Landmark report shows that institutional racism is dead. It did exactly what it was supposed to do. It's yeah. all nonsense. It's propaganda. It's not research. I mean, there's no. I mean, actually, it's 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 my only my only surprise is just how bad it is. You actually read it. It's yeah. appalling. I mean, I, it wouldn't actually pass first year. If you submit it as a first year assignment, it would fail. Like that's how bad. Yeah. It, it yeah. is a blatant propaganda. It's, it's it, it 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 has no rigor. I've said to people, you can look at every single page of the report and pull it apart. There isn't anything that can save it it's ridiculous honestly and I think it's one of the reasons why anybody that's meaningfully engaged in this work has to read the report only to put it to one side and then say right now let's get back to the work at hand because that is just a blip and it just highlights to us how challenging it's going to be to do this work with leadership support and we're not going to get leadership support we've never had support from the British government they're never going to support the work that we're doing and that's what makes it so fundamental 
So let's put that to one side and have a conversation about what the actual issues are, because I want to use this as, a, this as an opportunity for people to know what the history of this work is within the British context. We have a lot of conversations that are happening at the moment around what it means to decolonize the curriculum. And so I want us to just think about decolonizing knowledge more broadly to begin with. And that starts off with understanding the history of what racism looks like within the British context. You've done so much work on this. And in your book, The New Age of Empire, you've talked about how things have shifted from what we've considered the old empire, where we talk about slavery, colonialism, empire, etc., to now looking at empire working in a, in a structurally different way that may not be as explicitly violent, but still as harmful and with all of the same vulnerabilities as there were maybe a hundred years ago. So, I mean, yeah, I think that's the key thing is that it, it, it can look like it's not there, which I think is why this report is quite dangerous because, you know, you have black professors, you have black people in the, in the government, et cetera, and it can look like things are different and they've changed, but they haven't changed. They're exactly the same. The problem, it, institutional racism is about the institutions, about society, about structures, and there is yeah. no difference in that now than there was 500 years, well, maybe not 500, but 300 years ago. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, what I want to ask you to just as a starting point is, what is the, what are the lies that we have been fed in terms of the knowledge that is out there? Because it's so vast. And as somebody that is an educationalist, I always start off with, what is the knowledge that we've been given and how do we frame our understanding of the world with that knowledge? And the knowledge around what Britain is in terms of the history of Britain and this idea of fairness and British values that we're talking about is grounded in something. And that something is a lie. What is that lie? Well, I mean, where do, you, where do you start? The whole thing, I mean, I mean, the biggest lie is that it's the, the West, Britain, and Britain as a part of the West, is based on these three great revolutions of science, industry, um, and politics. And it's like this great emergence in the Enlightenment. You have these wonderful ideas, and they kind of translate through the world. And, that, and we've got, and we're really progressive. I mean, you listen to everything that's being said today. Britain's really progressive. Look at this great history. Britain ended slavery, apparently. You know, we should ignore mm. the fact that Britain was the premier slave trading nation for centuries because, you know, Britain stopped before other people. It's this kind of nonsense, right? That's mm -hmm. the biggest lie. Um, and what we have to undo is to say, well, look, all of those things happened, right? You do have democracy, you do have industrialization, but they were only possible because of barbaric, racist, colonial violence. Like without mm. the genocide in the Americas, there is none of this happened. I mean, that really kicks off the the emergence of the West in the Americas. Without slavery, there is no there is no industrial revolution. Never happens. There is no political revolution. Without the wealth from the colonies, uh, which is just exploited and drained into it, Britain can't exist, right? So mm -hmm. all of that story is not told, and we just pretend it's all a positive story. That's the biggest thing we need to get to get past. Yeah. And then when you tell that story, you understand that race, from the very beginning until now, white supremacy is embedded within the very structure of what the nation is. Absolutely. And the violence of white supremacy is in its omission. It's in its altering those stories and choosing who is going to be the villain and who's going to be the hero. And we've seen that time and time again. And one of the ways in which we talk about those heroes, particularly within the British context, is they end up defining the canons of knowledge. They end up defining who gets the statues, they end up defining who we revere and have remembrance days for and, and honour. And the history of those individuals, when we unpack them, people see it as a the need to defend the individuals as opposed to looking at 
what is the actual picture that we're trying to paint? How we do we paint a clear picture of what the world looks like? So for example, the conversations that were happening around uh, Winston Churchill. It's a very sore spot for many people in the country because Winston Churchill um, single-handedly saved us from the Nazis, apparently. Um, and so when you start to critique that, what, are the res- what have been the responses that you've received as soon as you say, this was also a man that was inherently a racist? Yeah, openly. Right? I mean, not like so not 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 a little bit of racism. No, it was terrible. Believed in eugenics, um, really firmly believed in the Aryan race. Agreed with Hitler on lots of things. In fact, mm. his own contemporaries said his views on Indians were the same as Hitler's views on the Jews. I mean, mm. this this is this is not a figure you want to celebrate. And actually, wasn't that popular at the time, right? I mean, you kind of forget at the time that many people thought he was he was extreme doesn't win the election after this great won the war single-handedly defeated the Nazis and then lost the general election the, 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 the after that and actually it's really strange because one of the responses has been for that Churchill was a racist there's been lots of lots of abuse but also loads of people Welsh people working class people Irish people said yeah we hated Churchill too <laughs> like I'm really surprised this deification yeah. of Churchill is a kind of later thing because in, in the 60s 70s there was lots and lots and lots of people couldn't yeah. detested him Absolutely. And I think for me, the reason I always draw on the example of Winston Churchill is because he almost epitomizes the way that in Britain, white supremacy is is almost legitimized because people often try and separate the individual from the act. And they say, okay, he may have individually done something or he may have had individual beliefs, etc. But for the collective, he did this. And, And the same works in reverse. So individuals might say, yes, there might be um, structural issues, but I individually am not racist. And that yeah. separation is always really, really problematic. And we see that with individuals such as Winston Churchill, but we see that also around the broader narrative of whenever you talk about issues to do with race and racism in Britain, people always go into either the category of we're talking about individuals or what is the collective responsibility. Yeah. And it was makes no sense. And particularly with Churchill, actually just understand the collective what did actually this idea that Churchill did these great things collectively well one there's a really terrible story you're telling there because Churchill just generally no one person won the war it's disrespectful to everybody in the United Kingdom in the colonies there are millions of people black and brown around the world who fought in the colonies my family in the Caribbean was just as important as my family in Britain in the war effort right women massively in the war effort the idea that Winston Churchill won the war is a stupid idea which just unfortunately is how we tend to view history through these great white men. And then there's the other thing about well, what does what what about the negative things? I mean, Churchill did really bad things as well. For example, India, there is lots and lots of evidence to suggest that Churchill, specifically Churchill, actually, specifically Churchill's indifference meant that millions more people died in the Bengal famine should have died, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, that kind of should count. So actually, if you look at the actual actions as well, look at him in South Africa, look at him in Kenya, look at he actually did some really terrible things as well, which would just kind of been discounted because you want to make this this fantasy version of, of history. Yeah, and I think that's, that's exactly it, is this, this fantasy version, that Britain is benevolent and has been benevolent and has been good and kind, etc. And so whenever we start to do this work, it almost feels as though we are challenging the very core of this nation. And yeah. one of the biggest critiques that I often get whenever we try and push forward work that's around anti-racism, that's around decolonizing the curriculum, is you'll have that classic response of, can Britain be changed as a, as a nation in, this, in terms of the systems that it works within? And if it can't, why are you here? Yeah. 
why are you staying? The world's a big place. Yeah. Why don't you go somewhere else where the systems can be changed, etc.? Have you had have you had comments like that and what has been oh, yeah, response yeah. to it? We said we weren't going to talk about Facebook, but Facebook actually said this to me once on television. Well, if you don't like it here, why don't you go somewhere else? And my response was, where else could I possibly go? Like, this is a global system. This is this is the other thing. We think about racism. You cannot understand it. National, there's no British racism or American racism. There's yeah. racism, which is all around the world. So think about my family's... The fact that my family's even in the Caribbean. We're not supposed to be in the Caribbean. This is just, just for, for a start. We're there because of the history of slavery. You look exactly. at the devastation and underdevelopment of the African continent, Asia. This has reached all around the world. There is nowhere you can go which is free from white supremacy. So the yeah. idea you can just leave and go somewhere else, that's, again, not complete. Yeah. So that's, there's a question for us, though, to consider. Can the systems that we work with within Britain ever change? They can end. <laughs> I mean, no, so, I, mean it's, I guess there's a two-part two to that. So one, can... The British school system, for example, ever not be institutionally racist? The answer to that question is no. The purpose of the British school system is racism. It's one of the things that it does. So it's always going to reproduce racism, 100%. Yeah. So in the long term, what you want to do, so actually you need, a new, you need a completely new way of thinking about education and about schools. That's the only long-term solution. But in the short term, there, are, there, are, there have been changes in the sense of when you get access into them and there's some really good practice with teachers, and even look at universities, again, which aren't going to change, but we're in the universities and can use them to do some interesting stuff. So mm. can you do interesting things within these institutions? Yes. But no, the institutions fundamentally can't not be institutions racist because that's kind of the point, right? Mm. So when we're within the UK, working within all of these systems and structures, not only are we doing the work on an individual level of trying to be disruptive, to be um, anti-racist, to, to push forward these changes, it's also about accepting that because you're in that system, you are complicit in a racist system. And that's an uncomfortable thing for all of us to accept, but it is, it is the reality is if you work within an education system, particularly, you are complicit in, in racism on a day-to-day -day basis because of the structures that you're working within. Yeah, 100%. I mean, I, I, I teach black studies and students are getting charged 9,000 pounds a year. I mean, like, it's ridiculous. <laughs> like, and in fact, the only reason we got the course is because students are paying 9,000 pounds a year. And the university was like, well, we can make some money, so let's go ahead. So I have to accept that that's an exploitative relationship, whether I like it or not. So, but once I've said that, then I say, okay, well, well, then what do we do? Because the other thing about this is anybody who lives in the West is complicit in racism. Like the, oh. the, the, the differences in our lives and most of the world are so stark. Think about it. I always use COVID as the example where COVID death rate now is kind of giving us this is this is the death rate that many countries just have all the time like we're mm. like oh look all these people are dying. this happens around the world all the time nine yeah. million people die from hunger every single year mm -hmm. far more people died last year from hunger than covid yeah. so and we're so privileged that when covid strikes we shut down everything we close down everything we can't have this many people dying because white life here is worth so valuable but that's just mm. the experience of many people around the world and mm -hmm. it is really uncomfortable to realize that that happens because of the wealth that we have so all of us here are complicit. That's not what we can you do, Betty. I can't, I can't, I can't change where I was born. Right? I can't change. I'm going to live here. I'm going to be here. Uh, but I have mm. to accept that I in that I am complicit in a really unequal racial system. And then the question is, what can we do from that? So there's no yeah. way you could be in Britain and not be complicit. The question then yeah. is, what do you do with that complicity? And how do you try to challenge it? Right? Absolutely. And, and part of that, what do you do with that is doing the work internally of disrupting those systems as much as you possibly can 
but also there is some work for us to do outside of those systems as well. And I really love the work that you do around um, black, black supplementary schools and talking about the richness of the history of those spaces as spaces of resistance. Can you talk to us a little bit more about the history of black supplementary schools and why they've been so fundamental in, in the work of black resistance? Yeah, I mean, I think that one of these, if once we accept the, the schools are just the schools and they're, they're racist, and that's what they're going to do. Then you kind of have to say, well, what else can we do? What alternatives are there? And that's essentially what the community did in the 60s. So you only really get large numbers of black students in schools, like children in the 60s because of the migration patterns. And at first there was this kind of, you know, British colony. So we think it was going to be great in the British school system. Very quickly, it turned out that wasn't the case. And, you know, Bernard Cord's book, which has came out, there's a new edition that came out yesterday. As you know. mm. Um, uh, how the West Indian Charles made education so normal, kind of opened the lid on all of this. And so the response was two-pronged. One, let's try and fix the schools. But at this point, you know, there's no race relations that we're not in the schools. We kind of understand that's not going to be that possible. So we just said, well, let's do it ourselves. So we started in people's front rooms, in community organisations, eventually in churches. I said, look, we can't rely on the, the state for this, so we never do it ourselves. And mm -hmm. we're very successful, like massively successful. God, tens of thousands of children have gone through Saturday schools and the, the big difference with black Saturday schools versus like um, other minority Saturday school uh, extra schools is it's not religion it's not culture predominantly it's actually just math and English like if you actually look at what they teach it's math and English because mm -hmm. the schools mm -hmm. aren't teaching math and English so that we had to teach it ourselves and then added this kind of black studies element which you're just not going to get in the school but we yeah. took responsibility for that and I think that's the model that we need to go back to because we keep banging our heads on the school saying the school is going to change the school is what it is and we do have a long history of saying, well, let's just do it ourselves. Yeah. And ha have you noticed that there is a shift away from black supplementary schools? And what has that meant for the collective responsibility we have as black people in making sure that we are a part of that change as well? Because I've noticed that especially within the north, northern part of the UK, there are very few Saturday schools um, compared to when I was growing up and probably compared to before I was even born. Um, because I knew that there were more and more that were happening, but it's almost impossible to find five in the same city yeah. now when there were ones almost in every corner of the city yeah. at one point. So why do you think there's such a, it's been diluted so much to the point where it's either there and it's no longer the, with the focus of black studies or it's not happening at all? Uh, I think it's part of a broader shift where, you know, the black, British Black Panther generally was about self-help. Like we all could call it the self-help movement. Can't rely on the state, so we're going to do for self. And there's this massive movement to do educational stuff, bookshops. Um, just there's a whole pattern saying that we're going to do for self. And then what happens is these the movements are successful. You get the racial relations that you get a middle class, right? So for example, it's pretty unlikely I'd be a professor today, given the statistics. But 40 years ago, that's not happening, right? That's not an, it's not an option. It's not an option to me. Mm -hmm. What's happened is the only real thing that changed is, this, is there's been a little cracks open so that some people can be successful. And because of that, I think generally we've tried to say, can we get in? Can we change these things? Can we, can we fix the system? And we have taken our eye off the ball generally. And Saturday schools is mm -hmm. one of those examples where a lot of our efforts has been trying to fix the schools rather than do for self. And so I think that's why you're seeing the decline. But I would predict there'll be a, an increase because I think people have realised they don't work. <laughs> realise that this is the end point you get there is a middle class some, to some extent. The system stay the same. Schools, you're not getting stuff for your kids. So there has been a difference. There has been a massive difference in the last, probably the last 20 years, a decline. Yeah. But hopefully, hopefully we're going back. Because I think a lot of people are talking about Saturday schools again now because they realise yeah. that none of the problems have been solved. I mean, Bernard Cord's books come out 
if you read Bernard Cole's book today, it's like the same. <laughs> Honestly, it's so little. Some of the language has changed a bit, but it's the same problem. We just replaced um, education so normal with people referral units. Same, yeah. Same thing. Absolutely. And I think the cynic in me is always going back to this is structural and it's by design. And if you look at the time when black supplementary schools were declining, it's also around the same time that multicultural education was rising. So, again, bringing something into the system to make it seem like it's actually being inclusive, but at the cost of removing what was within the community and people shifting people's focus in this direction and unfortunately I feel like as much as people are shifting towards building more supplementary schools and creating those spaces again there's a new narrative that's arising now around decolonizing the curriculum Mm. where people are saying how do we make black British history part of the school curriculum and how do we help the school to decolonize their curriculum and again it's sometimes shifting the focus away from what we also need in the community and I think we need to keep our eye on both of those spaces because yeah. we do need to be working on what's happening internally within schools, but it, it's so important to keep that momentum up for rebuilding the supplementary school system that we, we so desperately need. Yeah, I mean, I, um, I don't want to say you don't want to change the schools because obviously, like, there is stuff you can do, and there's certainly some teachers doing some great things. But, I mean, look at this government. Honestly, on, honestly, for the next four years, there is zero point in trying to convince this government to do anything about the schools because they're mm-hmm. not going to. They made it very clear they're not going to. So yeah. if there's ever a time to just say, you know, let's focus on building that stuff, alternative. And, and and the thing about now is there's so, you could, we could do whole online curriculums. You could do stuff you could do outside of Saturday schools. There's, it's not just Saturday school. I think we actually have the technology, the momentum, the, the capacity to say, well, look, this isn't going to be in the schools, but we can build a whole curriculum that has nothing to do with the schools or the university that people can access. Yeah. And that would be, for me, a much better route to do this. Especially that, because the schools, are, I guarantee you, four years, you don't get nothing to these schools. Yeah, yeah maybe in some school individual schools but as a system it's not it's definitely not true. yeah and I think it, the, the different pieces of work serve different purposes the, the the work around the supplementary school the work around the curriculum that is around um, black history and black studies is for us it's about us knowing our history it's about us knowing um, the, the truth of who we are within this space how we came to, to, to be here what are the challenges that we're facing how do we move forward and imagine a new future or imagine an alternative future. The decolonizing the curriculum for me is as much as it is also about us, it's also about educating the white students mm. and the white educators within that space on their own history, as well as understanding that in order for us to ever be able to work together and for there to be meaningful allyship, mm. we have to have a shared understanding of what the lie was yeah. and be willing to do the work of, of unpacking it. So <laughs> decolonizing the curriculum is, for me, primarily about how do we deconstruct what has always been a white space mm. and get people to just think critically. But it's going to take a very, very long time before that process of decolonizing the curriculum has any real benefit for us as people of colour. Yeah. You know, no, true, true. I mean, I think... why look, we look. always need that external space. Yeah, no, I mean, look, the truth is that the, the, the stuff that's being taught in the schools is bad for everybody. Like, it really is. Like, it's a bad version of history. They don't understand what's... We just had Brexit. And if, honestly, if we had a proper education system, Brexit would never have happened because I think people yeah. would have understood what, what, what the limits of this are. So it definitely, it definitely is necessary. It definitely is necessary. I guess 
the question is to to what extent can you do? To what extent can you keep banging your head against a brick wall? I think. Yeah. Um, and also, I think one of the things about space, even this podcast, spaces like that, that is also a way to get to get broader of people, right? To get other people into mm-hmm. the spaces. I just think the schools are just it's just a it's a bit of a minefield. Yeah, not, I don't want to say there's no point. And it is it's, it is the biggest instrument of institutional racism and it is the biggest instrument of white supremacy because what we can see from this government even over the last two years three years and the conversations that we've been seeing is their focus is primarily on education deliberately so so talking about the need to make sure we keep an eye on critical race theory entering into those spaces um, people that don't understand what anti-racism work is, critiquing what anti-racism work is, the narrowing, the deliberate narrowing of the curriculum and the need for it to take a more national focus on Britishness yeah. and British writers, etc. All of these are deliberate interventions that have come from the government in order to threaten schools and yeah. to threaten these educational institutions to say, um, if you're thinking about doing something different, know that there'll be a lot of pushback. And schools are nervous now more than ever to engage in this work. There's a social pull to engage with it because they've seen the reality of COVID-19 and the impact that it's had on, on um, black and brown communities. They've seen um, the impact of the murder of George Floyd. And again, we can have a full conversation about the narratives that have been around that, but it has created an impetus for schools to, to start to ask these difficult questions. But school leaders are nervous because they know that more than any other institution, more than any other um, sector, they are the ones that are going to be doing this um, as a pushback from what the government is explicitly saying they will not tolerate and they will not expect. So there's education is being weaponized. Oh, totally. And and, and this government has made no no pretense about that at all. Uh, Mm -hmm. But I think what you can do, I think is a lesson actually from Saturday school. So one of the things that Saturday school does is it, it's because you have this alternative space, it actually puts a lot of pressure on the mainstream schools. So that mm. actually one of the only reasons you get multicultural education, you get any movement in the, in the curriculum at all, is Saturday school. And having mm. a different, having this different space, having this different, and it puts loads of pressure on. And I think, again, that's a model where if you want to change the schools, if we're doing really interesting work in Saturday schools and, and, and alternative education, and that puts more pressure onto the school, but also mm. gives those educators in this, because remember schools, there's a school, there's the government, there's the school system, there's the school itself, and there's, a, there's the teachers. And there are teachers out there that want to do some good stuff. And we can develop the stuff in the alternative space that the teachers that can then bring in. So yeah. even to change the mainstream, you still have to have um, the status school. So if you actually, if we, if we had kept a strong black voluntary education movement, mm. it would have been far more difficult over the last 20 years to dismantle for the, for the real retrenchment of stuff that's happened. And yeah. so that's part of the thing we, we haven't learned. You need the alternative stuff because that really does put pressure on the mainstream. Yeah, and that's part of the collective responsibility, making sure that there are different pieces of work that are happening that ultimately come together for the same goal. So you do always need people that are within the system that are doing that work of challenging and disrupting within the system. And you always need people outside of the system to say, we've got a bit of breathing room and a breathing space. We're less confined. Let's work where we can to help and, to, and work alongside you as well. And there's a huge potential there for collaboration. What I saw growing up in the Saturday schools that I attended was, it really felt as though, and I think it was because I was raised in a very diverse part of the city where the school and the Saturday school were part of the community. And so the teachers we would see in the school would be the teachers we would see in the Saturday school. 
the activities we would engage with in the Saturday school would be part of the school's enrichment program. So it wasn't just black students that were benefiting from it, all students in the school were able to benefit from it. And it was a real dialogue in and outside of the system. So going in and out and it permeated throughout all of the community. So there were Pakistani, Bangladeshi, Somali, Jamaican um, communities that felt that they were seen, that they were heard, that they were valued. And that's essentially what we mean when we're talking about decon deconstructing the system is how do we work within where we are to do something that's different? Yeah, there was in the 80s, in the London Education Authority, actually had like proper like conferences where they're on Saturday schools and the head of the ILEA said um, Saturday school should be part of what the of what the school does, part of the system. And there mm. was a, a general attempt to integrate Saturday school into into what the education authority was doing. This all ended because of Thatcher and Thatcher came and destroyed everything and said, no, we're not gonna do that. But if you actually look that, that was one of the, probably the strongest bit, probably the strongest results of Saturday school was that it was how it shifted the mainstream schools. There's limits to it as well, don't get me wrong, but like the, that was one of the untold benefits of Saturday school. They did get you some, some kind of shift in what happened in the school, which again, that's been pulled back as well as Saturday school. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And we're, and we're not painting a, an, an idealised picture of Saturday schools because they're not perfect. No. Do you know what I mean? And they, and, they, and they haven't always been representative of the black community. And as somebody who is East African, I've attended plenty of um, Saturday schools and I probably know more about Marcus Garvey than I know about anybody <laughs> that's from East Africa. But it's because the nature yeah. of Saturday schools were designed for a particular community. Yeah. And the communities that didn't feel represented in mainstream education found a sense of community yeah. in, in the Saturday school. So I think if we are going to move towards these supplementary school programs, there are conversations that we can have internally about what does education for people of African descent look like? Yeah. How do we think about the concept of the Saturday school, but do it in a way where we think about what this means for all of us? as people yeah. of, of, of African descent as well. So just to put out there that we're not painting the picture that Saturday schools were the spaces of perfect <laughs> learning around Black Studies, it wasn't, but it was oh, a space okay. that we needed. Yeah, and, and, and also they're one of the reasons Saturday schools declined because there's always been a more conservative element to Saturday schools, which was, so Saturday, all Saturday schools did not teach, have uh, never always taught Black Studies, Black History, there's always been a number of just said, no, it's mass English. The whole purpose of this is to make sure they, they do well in the mainstream schools. There is no other purpose of this. And mm -hmm. so once there was more, the school, mainstream school started to change a bit and started to be a bit, you know, you got rid of um, education some normal. There was a group of people that said, we don't need it. We don't, we don't need this anymore. It's cool. We can yeah. just do this within the school, which also has led to this rise in um, tutoring. So actually tutoring is kind of taken over from Saturday schools where it's, I just want to get my kid to pass the, the GCSE. That's it. I did, the rest of it, I don't, I don't mind. And that's always and that's always been a trend. There's always been this kind of tension between those people who are saying, "No, nah, we need to do black studies; it needs to be different," and those people mm -hmm. saying, "No, nah, we just want our kids to, to get the good grades." And so I think that's yeah. another reason why you've seen a decline because there's other routes now for the more conservative. Well, I know I say conservative, but the more let's just get mainstream success that you don't need to have Saturday school. Yeah, absolutely. And there's a number of reasons for that. So part of that is internalized colonialism where we feel as a school is where learning takes place and anything else is just a distraction. There's part of that within our community, we know that. Um, but there's also an element of communities have always taken on the responsibility of um, teaching and learning history in different ways. So for example, within the Somali community, we are a very oral 
community. And so the idea of there being a school to teach about the history of what Somalia is and, 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 and the different things that we've encountered would sound absurd to quite a lot of parents because yeah. it's, we teach it through poetry, we teach it through song, we teach it through stories that parents tell their children, etc. But when those dynamics aren't there, then there becomes a need for spaces yeah. to be to be created and we know that Saturday schools were the result of a number of different social needs not just the need of what was lacking within the education system as well so yeah. I think there are there are different conversations that we need to have around that as well but one thing that I wanted to, to touch upon with you is um, when I attended Saturday schools that was my introduction to somebody who I know that you're a huge admirer of mm-hmm. and it, it appears in all of your work but is also somebody that I I love as well, and that is Malcolm X. Yeah. I haven't spoken about Malcolm X. That's a long time to not talk about Malcolm X. So. I know, I know. <laughs> we should have talked about it in the very beginning. But let's talk about Malcolm X because he's he's such an instrumental figure in Black resistance, in in your work, in my work, um, in the idea of Black radicalism, in the way in which we can imagine and uh, a new future and the possibilities we have moving forward. Tell me about why Malcolm X is such an instrumental figure in the work that you do. Why is it so important that people understand how important this individual is as a, as, um, a change maker? Because that is what he is. I mean, Malcolm just simply is the, the best, has the best, has the, has the most full and concrete analysis of racism that you will find. Like really just, it just breaks down white supremacy and does it really simply, like in a way that like makes it plain, but you can understand it. And there is no better social theorist if you want to understand how the way that racism plays out, particularly in America, mm-hmm. but, but globally as well. There really isn't. Um, and again, it's interesting you talk about uh, Somali tradition and oral. I mean, Malcolm's oral tradition, right? Like, mm-hmm. it's, it's all, but if you listen to those speeches, and you have to listen to them to really like get the, there's a, there's a way that's put across the set of jokes in it are funny. Like, you know, it's just a way of, communi- a way of communicating. Ma- Malcolm is always in my work because he represents like radicalism better and more clearly than, any, than anyone else mm-hmm. and in a way that relates and as if you listen to the ballot or the bullet 1964 mm-hmm. it's in america some of the stuff is very american specific but i promise you that will give you a better understanding of race in britain today than anything else i could point you to and that so that's a testament to just how important the ideas of malcolm and i agree i agree what is black radicalism tell people what is black radicalism I mean, basically, black radicalism is two elements. One is black, which sounds like it should be quite straightforward, but really, really isn't, right? So Africa, African descent, but black in a, um, is a political sense to it, political meaning. In fact, mm-hmm. again, to quote, Mal- there's be a lot of Malcolm quotes in this, this part, uh, where he says there's a new type of Negro who calls themselves black. So it's understanding mm-hmm. that the, the color of our skin, it's not a cultural thing, it's not a genetic thing, it's, it's, a, it's a political responsibility to each other because of our shared but different but because of our location in society generally but mm. also our history and how we go forward so it's the idea that blackness is the thing which connects us together is the thing which unifies us effectively mm. and then it, it's, it's radical because it says you can't you're not gonna can't you can't fix this system as malcolm says this system can no more provide freedom justice and equality for black people than a chicken can lay a duck egg it's just mm. not meant to do it right so radical means to overturn to overthrow to be revolutionary that's simply that's what black radical is yeah, absolutely. And that's Audre Lorde's phrase of the master's tools cannot be used to dismantle the master's house. So for me, the, the, the most important thing about Malcolm, as opposed to 
on top of all of the things that we've talked about and, and these this incredible speeches and his views on how the system came to be and how it works in such complex and nuanced ways. And he pulls it apart really beautifully with, with, with metaphors, with such vivid imagery when you listen to his, his speeches as well. But his story, his journey, for me, is an anti-racist journey. Mm. From beginning straight through to end, from being in prison and, and reading and, and feeling that what he was reading was giving him a window into the world that he never had before, for me is really fundamentally what we need to be thinking about as anti-racist is, what is the journey that we are going on? And his journey is such a profound one to talk about the importance of knowledge and how knowledge is important, to talk about how that knowledge that then translates into action, but then also talking about the, the metamorphosis of his action. Because what he was doing at the very start of his journey isn't the same as what he was doing later in his life. And there were a number of things that changed the, the trajectory of the work that he was doing, but his goal was always fundamentally the same. Yeah, I mean, I think yeah, Malcolm's a perfect example of um, just political political development. So Malcolm essentially developed, right? And there's a there's a piece of work by William Cross called Negro to Black Conversion Experiences, where it basically says that people start off in this kind of Negro phase where maybe you don't think about racism, you just kind of blah, 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 maybe, um, and then something happens, there'll be an encounter, and for Malcolm, that's his um, going to prison, right? So prior mm -hmm. to that, he's not really thinking about race, he's hostler, et cetera, goes to mm -hmm. prison, sees the reality, starts to read. The reading is the, the key thing. And again, that's such an important idea that you have to study. This isn't mm -hmm. just, oh, I just woke up one day, I want to do something. Now you've got to study, like proper like study. And he talks about reading as snow, like snow falling off a roof, mm -hmm. how it just completely changed his, his ideas, his mentality. And then Cross says is the next phase where you have, um, in, you internalize blackness, but you really don't like white people because once you start to think about, once you start to really read about this stuff, and if it's the first time you read about it, you're probably yeah. going to be anti-white. I, I everybody would. That's the logical thing to do, right? Mm -hmm. but white people terrible. And so Malcolm goes into that phase, which is like the nation of Islam, white mm -hmm. people the devil, et cetera, et cetera. But there's a final stage where it's not about white people. I think that's really important. I yeah. don't think about white people really ever. At all. And mm -hmm. this is why I love Malcolm, because Malcolm's unapologetically black. He's just talking to a black audience. And yeah. we'll just say what needs to be said and isn't worried about what's this person going to think, what's that person going to think. He's saying this is what we need to hear. And then Malcolm arrives at that kind of, at that stage where it's, it's, it's pro-Black, it's Black Revolution, it's global as well. It's very global. I travel yeah. in Africa and, and the Arab world before he dies, Europe as well. Um, mm. And just comes to this position where he just really just perfectly embodies what the Black radical tradition is about. Really. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and that is so key because when we talk about doing anti-racism work and the importance of knowledge in anti-racism work, people often assume that we're talking to white people. And we're saying, if you're going to do this work, you need to have the knowledge, you need to have the racial literacy. Um, you've lived your entire life, has never been racialized as white. You need to know what whiteness is and white privileges, etc. Absolutely. But people that are racialized as black can't assume that their skin gives them all the knowledge that they need. <laughs> there is there is experiential knowledge of course we have our lived reality mm. but you can't even make sense of your lived reality if you don't know the structures and the systems that have constructed it yeah. in that way and so the importance of just looking at Malcolm's story of yes he lived as a black man but it wasn't until he he read he learned he understood what this actually meant in the society that he was in that he was able to make sense of the decisions that he was making 
but also the decisions that he could make moving forward. And so that importance of black people need to be anti-racist too, <laughs> which sounds like an <laughs> obvious thing to make, but we can see from the report that was released that being oh, right. black does not make you anti-racist. In fact, you can be a black person and be one of the most fundamentally white supremacist compliant person out oh, yeah, there. And we've, and we've seen several examples of those within central government within this report. Yeah, yeah. that's another reason why Malcolm, the Malcolm calls it out, but Malcolm has terms like has Negro, Uncle Tom, all this stuff. That's important intellectual work. Like it's not, when we think about this, people have gone on these racial slurs and they're nah, nonsense. These are important, really, concepts. And Malcolm articulates them the best. And actually, again, spent lots of his time on this. Because I think one of the things which always, mm-hmm. always gets to me about the black is like, there is this idea that if because of black people should agree, we should be trying to come mm-hmm. to consensus. Let's sit down with Tony Sewell. No, 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 no. Tony Sewell needs to go away. He's not part, he's not part of the project. Like, he's, just not, he's illegitimate. We should be able to say no. Why, exactly. Uncle Tony, you're not welcome. You what? You're an agent of the state, right? And mm-hmm. there's no, you won't get any better explanation of this than back of it. That, and, that, and we need that because it's really important that as black people, we have disagreed with each other more than we've disagreed with white people. There are yeah. very different visions of what the world looks like at the end of all this. And and again, Malcolm is a perfect example of distilling that and bringing it out really clear. Yeah, absolutely. And it's so powerful to see the way that history repeats itself because you've got people criticizing the way that Malcolm's referring to uh, people as, as, as house Negroes, as Uncle Tom's, et cetera. But on the other hand, you've got people that are paying so much attention to current language that is being used around Becky and Karen yeah. and, and so on and so forth. Instead of paying attention to what is actually being explained mm-hmm. through this language, there's a focus on the sensitivities of whiteness yeah. in the language. So it's offensive. It's, it's making people feel uncomfortable. It's shutting down the conversation, et cetera. We see this even when we're doing anti-racism training for schools and we go into those spaces and a school will say, we really want to engage in anti-racism training with you, but can we change the language to um, enrichment training or inclusion training, etc." And my question to them always is, who is the language offending? Yeah. Who is the language making uncomfortable? Who feels that the language needs to be changed? That right there is the problem. Yes. and highlighting for, for them. So I think the really powerful thing for me around Malcolm is he names the issue. Yeah. You can get caught up in the language and, and how the metaphors that he's used and how he's framed um, particular experiences. But if you pay attention to what he's actually trying to say, no one articulates it as clearly as he does. And I keep going back to his, some of his examples and saying, oh my God, I can see examples of the house Negro here. I'm just explaining it. I'm just explaining it in this in this way. But if I wanted to just name the issue explicitly, I would use Malcolm's words. <laughs> I know that people are not going to take on board Malcolm's words, but this is actually the House Negro in action. Yeah, but, but this but the whole point is that we should be uncomfortable. Like right? yeah. discussing race should be uncomfortable. Is an uncomfortable thing, and also the complicity of us. I think that's really important. Now that term mm-hmm. House Negro is actually Malcolm does kind of use it. Like as an insult, there's some way it's funny because, like, back was a joke as well. So, mm. it, it, but it's not meant as an insult. Actually, has Negro, what they're saying is that, you know, on the plantation, it's a recogni- recognition that, and we saw this today, like, so many conversations about this report. Well, if these black African students are doing well, surely that means there's no racism. That's complete nonsense. What that, the whole point of has Negro is to say there has always been some people who do slightly better than other people on, on, in, on the plantation. Racism isn't just all black people do terribly, there's, there's differences. And there is an important mm-hmm. class dimension 
uh, of those who lived in the house and those who were in the field. And what he's basically saying is if you, if you are in a slightly privileged position and if you uh, are doing slightly better, you are far less likely to understand that you're still a slave, you're still subject to racism and that you need to have a revolution, right? So mm-hmm. I always accept firmly in that analysis, I'm a house Negro. I can't be mm-hmm. anything else. I have more uh, access to wealth than most people in the world. So mm-hmm. what that then should make me uncomfortable and say, well, okay, hang on a second, what does that mean? Yeah. And that, what that means is then I have to say, well, I can't look at my position and go, oh, I'm a professor that isn't that great. Well, let's move on to the system of wonderful. Mm-hmm. I have to look at the field Negro, the masses, look at the people who are really struggling and say, well, actually, that's how we understand racism today. And I have to be on the side of those people. That's what the house Negro field Negro is. It's not about yeah. thought. Yeah, absolutely. It's about recognizing that the more access to this, and I'm not going to even say the word privilege, but the more access you have to whiteness, yeah. um, the, the more of a burden you have and the further away it takes you away from the root of the issue. And it, I've, I've noticed the more that I've been within the academy in particular, the more disconnected I feel from the community. And it is in, essentially because you are complicit in the systems, you are ingrained within the systems and it, it, it comes with acknowledging that as well. And I think naming it, using the language allows us to recognize our own complicity. So everybody should feel uncomfortable with this. It isn't just people that are racialized as white, people that are racialized as black should not feel comfortable talking about some of these. And if it is, it's the focus is too far away from what we're actually doing ourselves. And I've, we find that. We find, particularly on social media, we find people that are racialized as black talking about the impact of racism, which is hugely important. But then where is the mirror that points back at us to say, but how are we complicit in allowing this to remain as it is? Where where does our own individual accountability and our collective community accountability come into this as well? Yeah, and that's the point of of all of Malcolm. We say, look, we have to, it isn't about your individual location. It isn't about your individual family. It's about looking at us as a whole. That's why the blackness is really important. It says that if one of us isn't free, then none of us are free. And you judge that by those who are at the bottom. And one of the things that gets about that we've really gone wrong with race generally is we nationalize it. So like we look at Britain, look, Britain, if I'm looking at the black diaspora globally, nobody in Britain is at the bottom. Nobody, not Mm. one person. We have a welfare state. It's tough, you're gonna get a house, you're gonna be so like it's there's definitely problems, don't get me wrong, there's huge issues. Yeah. But if we're looking about global, we have to look globally and say, well, the conditions in Congo, that's that's where the field Negro is. That's yeah. what we should be focusing our, our pursuits on. But yeah. too often what we're we're doing say, well, how can we get better access to this? Right? How do we get more black middle class people? How do we get more black professors? That's not a question I really have any interest in answering. The question is, how do we stop a child dying every 10 seconds because they've got no access to food? Mm-hmm. And that just reorients how we should think about this problem. And then also tells you this is the only thing you can really do is get rid of this and do, and do, and do something else in the long run. Yeah, absolutely. And, and that, that's hit the nail on the, the head. I think the biggest way, the easiest way we're able to move forward with this is if we recognize that what we're challenging is the system. Mm-hmm. And I think sometimes we get so caught up in challenging individuals yeah. that we lose sight of the fact that it's a system. And my response is always, nobody wants to encounter a racist in the street. Nobody wants to encounter somebody with um, prejudiced views that, are, that decides to act on those views in front of you. But ultimately somebody not being racist doesn't change the health inequalities, the education inequalities, or the criminal justice inequalities that I, that I experience on an everyday basis. So you on an individual level don't have a significant impact on what I'm experiencing on a systemic and a, and a structural level. 
And so the conversations need to be about the system and structures. Yeah, 100%. And I think, actually, going back to that report again, I actually quite like this report in some ways. This report is actually better for what we need to do than the McPherson report. Because the McPherson mm. report came out, institutional racism, everybody's like, yeah, great, yeah. it's going to change. Change the laws, right? You got the different racial relations act. And guess what? Because everything was exactly the same. <laughs> Nothing changed. It, yeah. It's exactly the same. At least with this report, we can see through it. You can see through it. It's not, we know what it is. And yeah. hopefully this will mean we don't have faith in this. It's, it's, not the, it's not the report isn't the problem. The system is the problem. Yeah. And, there, and no government British has addressed this and no report has addressed this. And we yeah. should stop. And the main thing we need to do is stop expecting the government to change the system which is they are, their whole purpose is to defend the system of white supremacy. And we yeah. need to start doing the alternative work ourselves, right? Absolutely. And I completely agree with you about the McPherson report because it's one of the reasons why institutions have been able to become more covert in their racism. Because now they have a corporate responsibility. They've got the Equalities Act. They've got protected characteristics. They've created EDI teams. They've created EDI posts, etc. And all it does is it means... We've got a lot more foliage to have a look at <laughs> rather than saying, right, how do we deal with the actual issues at hand? So if we have a look at the McPherson report, there isn't a single institution that is going to say we disagree with the McPherson report. But what has changed as a result of it? Very little. On the surface, visibly, a lot of things may have changed. So organisations may have um, employed more diverse staff in the broader sense of what diversity means um they may have created edi policies they may have created um, um rhetorical statements that they release every single year about their commitment to equality diversity <laughs> inclusion etc but what's changed systemically nothing because the report wasn't requiring anybody to change anything no, it actually made it worse it actually made it, actually made it worse so it's, 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 if you look at the racial relations framework it defines racism it talks institutional racism, but only defines racism as racist incidents, basically. Sets yeah. this ridiculously crazy bar to say this is a racial incident. Yeah. So now, and I had an experience with this. So I go to my uni, report something, which is clearly, like, clearly, obviously, there's evidence. It's like, it's so obviously racist that it's ridiculous to discuss it. Mm -hmm. But as a bar that's been laid out by the equalities um, standard, it's not racist. So I'm yeah. like, hang on a second, like, this is clearly racist. <laughs> but there is nothing I can do. Because when I go to a lawyer, they say, oh, well, that doesn't quite meet this criteria. Da, 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 da. And then the uni turns around and says, oh, well, of course it's not racist. Yeah. But that's, and that's, and that's, so they actually, the, the actual stuff that was supposed to be celebrated has actually made it more difficult to, <laughs> to, to bring claims of racism against the university. Exactly. And you're absolutely right. I think the reason why this report is so important, even though it's a, it's a load of nonsense, is the fact that we can see it as a load of nonsense, rather than it being given some sort of legitimacy because it's using particular language. It's using language that actually reflects the way that this government sees the issue. And that is that it chooses not to see the issue and that it chooses to position people that are, um, that are people of color as being the problem. If you are excluded from schools, it's because it's your problem. If, you, uh, if the maternal death rate is high, it's because it's your problem. If the mental health rate is high, it's because it's your problem. And we had a conversation about this before the podcast started where I said, it's also by design that they've got a person of color to lead it. Oh yeah. And the, it's also by design that they've got commissioners to be other people of color. They've, they've literally looked at a palette and said, let's make sure that we have the full range so that we don't get any pushback. And yeah. there's so much we could say with Malcolm around those, oh, God, that, yeah. some of those decisions. <laughs> 
but it, but they've done it in such a blatantly obvious way and i and it's i really appreciate and i know it's hard for us to be thinking about this when we're still in the middle of covid is i really appreciate the last few years that we've had globally because this rise in white supremacy this overt rise in white supremacy has forced people to name their position that ignorance isn't an option anymore so i think if nothing else, we know what's in front of us. Yeah, no, I mean, I think that, is, that I mean? is certainly a good thing. And and this is what's happened. This is actually one thing that has changed, is there now is a whole, it's interesting, I get called a race hustler a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm not, the, the race hustlers are the people whose only credibility is that they're black and brown and will deny institutional racism. That's mm-hmm. it, that's their whole career. That's what get invited on TV, they'll, be, they'll get invited to do reports. And there's a whole class of people. That's what they do. They just, that's it. That's their whole existence is to die in yeah. racism. And they've been brought together to do this, this report. Tony Sewell does not have any credibility. No, other people, I didn't even know who they were. I mean, that's somebody who is an expert yeah. on this field. Like, I don't know who these people are. Right? So journalists, yeah. random black and brown people. And this is what, this is what they always do to me as well. I go on, even today, I'm on a, I'm on a uh, Radio 5 Live. Um, debating Calvin Robinson. What's mm-hmm. Calvin Robinson though? He's a blogger. Like it's ridiculous. Like the whole idea is ridiculous, right? But yeah. that's what's that's what's been put up. But the, the aim of this is to gaslight us, and I think we should. Just yeah, absolutely. And, and I, I had an incident with Calvin Robinson on Twitter just literally probably about a month or two ago, where I I made the mistake of naming him on a tweet as an example, and it's pretty Patel. There are many others that could have been named as an example of individuals who are often the face of white supremacist actions and violence towards other black people. Yeah. And as usual, and you've probably had this countless times, the white liberal supporters, the white conservative supporters, the, 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 the black um, supporters who, again, perceive things in a particular way, were out in, in numbers to say, we must protect him at all costs. And my immediate response was, first of all, he can protect himself. Yeah. But, se- but secondly, protection from what? You can't on one, se- on one hand say there's free speech and people should be able to air a view. And on the other hand say, we must protect those black people that are our mouthpieces <laughs> at all costs. It, it, doesn't, it doesn't work alongside each other. No, but at least I want for this. I go to back up for this again. At least there's so Uncle Tom. This is so Kevin Robinson and even Tony Sue aren't Uncle Toms, and the reason is quite an important distinction because mm. Uncle Tom for Malcolm is somebody who has credibility with black people yeah. and is leading them astray. So he would call Martin Luther King an Uncle Tom. We should mm. all go, Wow, Martin Luther King, Uncle Tom. But what Malcolm's saying is, Look, civil rights is a mistake, all you black people love him, he's leading you down this path which isn't going to go anywhere, mm. and that's the Uncle Tom. You can't call. Tony Sewell, no, because he got no credibility, right? I mean, there's yeah. no, no black people listening. They're not going, oh, Calvin Robinson, yeah, listen to him. This is something different. This is this is shocking and jiving, cooning, tap dancing. This is yeah. literally being the black face, uh, the black face of white racism. Yeah. At least because of that, we're not falling for it. So on the on the plus yeah. side, we know black people know that's that's just that is really yeah. for a white audience. It's not for us. That's not for uh, us. Absolutely. And these are new strategies for an old game. Like we've seen this happen time and time again historically. And it takes us really nicely back to into your new book. Because that's essentially what you're talking about. Talk to us about the new age of empire, how there are new things that are that we that appear to be happening now, but they really come from historic legacies and not much has changed at all. Talk to us about the book. 
Yeah, so that, that's the thing. Like, nothing really is new here. So if you look at racial inequality, obviously that's not new. That goes back to what the West is. But even look at this class, this diversity, right? So you talk about this, this, this even this class of people who are justifying colonial, etc. That's always been the case. Like, the British mm-hmm. Empire could not have survived without a whole class of people in Africa, Caribbean, uh, Arab world who were saying, yeah, yeah, we'll go ahead with it. We'll go along with it. There were more Indian people, there were more Indians in the British army in India than there were British people. Mm-hmm. One thing that blew my mind with reading the book the other day was um, the Amritsar massacre, which is mm-hmm. like one of these things that even, even like Niall Ferguson and proper white supremacists say, oh, that was bad, that was a terrible thing. When, when the British unloaded and killed like hundreds of, just literally massacred and mur- murdered loads of Sikhs, a whole chunk of the people doing that were Sikhs. I mean, just really think about this. Really mm. think about that. The, actually, the empire, the rulers of the, the the people that allowed empire to happen were extraordinarily diverse, like massively yeah. diverse. So when we have a government which is the most diverse government in history, <laughs> just being the most racist government in recent memory, we shouldn't be surprised because this has always been part of the playbook. There is zero Absolutely. happening here that's new; just a continuation of the, of the same. Right? Absolutely. And it's why knowledge is so important. And it's why decolonizing the curriculum is so important, because unless we know what's been happening, we're always going to be surprised when things happen, moving forward and be like, this is the first time it's happened. And those of us that have been doing this work for so long are seeing the report. We're seeing the narratives of the government and saying, we could have looked at this 30 years ago, 40 years ago in in another report, and it would have looked exactly the same. The language may have been different, but the sentiment was it was exactly the same and so that's it's really really important to remember that history always repeats itself and it runs in cycles and what we're seeing now may be performed in a different way but the game is still the same yeah that's the key perform differently may look a bit different on the surface but it's the same the basic logic is white black and brown life is disposable white life is superior and supreme and it, and, it, and, it, and black and brown life will always be disposed in order to benefit whites and that, that's that's the game that's been the game forever and if you look look think about how your clothes are produced think about how having this conversation on zoom and that think about yeah. trade trade balances think about a child dying every 10 seconds never got any food think yeah. about all of those things and you will see very clearly that i mean the, the best example is just look at uh wealth the wealth inequality after mm-hmm. so, so-called sub-saharan africa is the poorest part of the world mm-hmm. um the white place is the richest part of the world and there is a hierarchy in between we mm-hmm. literally created a world in the image of white supremacy. The only difference now is we pretend it's not racist, right? Like people yeah. say, well, that's not racist. What else could it possibly be? Yeah, absolutely. And again, it's the idea of the author is the one that can tell the story. The person who has the pen is the one that can tell the story. And everything that we're seeing now about claims of Britain not being racist, of there being no institutional racism, etc., it's Britain telling that narrative. It's the British government telling that narrative. And it's always going to be from one perspective. So I don't know why anybody's surprised. I'm not surprised. This is it. I've got a lot of hot water for saying that the British Empire was worse than the Nazis, which is ridiculous because, of course, it was. It was a lot mm-hmm. like, it lasted for far longer, killed yeah. more people, and actually inspired. The British Empire inspired it. Hitler's got all praises for the British Empire. Yeah. But just imagine if the Nazis had won. So if the mm-hmm. Nazis had won, we wouldn't be learning about oh how terrible the Germans are. Da, 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 da. We'd have this whole thing about oh the Jews really aren't real people and Hitler was great. Da, 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 da. Yeah. That's essentially what we've done with the British Empire, right? Yeah, it really is what we've done with the British Empire. Yeah. And I was on the show this morning and I said institutional racism denier, and it was one of those Brexit. Juliet Hartwell, I can't remember her name. What is Brexit? Brexit. Brexit. Mm-hmm. And now you can't say institutional racism denier. That's like Holocaust denial. Institutional racism is something that it was. There's no no institutional racism 
the evidence is there. It's very, very clear. Like, yeah. you, you, how could you, you can only deny it if you're a liar or a fool. And But yeah. we're treating it like it's a debate. It's not a debate. It's just, it's just the truth. How do yeah. You, what do you do? Absolutely. And I think this is the power of education and it's the power of what knowledge is allowed to be visible and what knowledge is deliberately made invisible. Because if you ask people, what are the global genocides that you can name? They'll name the Holocaust because that is the one that we all know. And it's not about drawing comparisons between murder because murder is murder and it's unjust. But how many people know about the Rwandan genocide? Do you, do you know what I mean? And those those stories have de- deliberately been silenced. And it's about asking the questions of when we're talking about decolonizing the curriculum, when we're talking about having these difficult conversations, we're not saying choose one story over another. We're saying we need to have a conversation <laughs> about the full story. Yeah, I mean, think tell, about the, tell the story fully. Yeah, I mean, think about this, right? That the, there is no word for genocide until the Holocaust. So mm. the ten million people that die in the Congo the 68 million people that die in uh, North America, mm-hmm. the, the millions of people who die in, 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 uh, in the transatlantic slave trade, they just didn't count conceptually to European. Yeah. It was only when white people were killed in these same numbers, they went, oh, whoa, 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 that, that, that's different. We need, to have a, we need to have a different term. Just think about how deep that is. Yeah. That's white supremacy and it's pure yeah. as well. Yeah, absolutely. Gindi, we could talk for yes. ages, but I want to thank you so much for spending the morning with me and having that conversation. Tell us how we can reach you, what are your um, social media handles, any new work that you're doing that people need to know about. Um, please just share it with us. Uh, so I'm on Twitter, uh, Insta. So I think my Twitter's handle is at Kyendi underscore Andrews. Uh, make it plain. So we actually started a, a blog site, essentially. It's kind of the home of Black Radical Thought. Make it plain is a Malcolm X quote. You probably won't be surprised. Um, so it's make-it-plain.org. Um, and you can find different articles. I actually just wrote a piece about the so-called report as well. Brilliant. And all of the links to the, everything that you mentioned, we'll put it in the um, the description for the podcast as well. So anybody that wants to check it out, they can check it out. Candy, thank you so much again. I'll be in touch really soon, but I really appreciate your time. No worries. Thank you. It's really important to understand history in order to make sense of where we are. There's a lot of hurt, there's a lot of frustration, there's a lot of anger towards the Tony Siegel report. But for those of us that have been engaged in anti-racism work for many years, the content of the report is not surprising. The delivery of the report is not surprising. And the response to the report is not surprising. We've seen these same dynamics play out again and again and again throughout history. The faces have been different, the language and the tools that have been used have been different, but the dynamics have remained the same. This report does highlight for us, however, the position that the government has chosen to take. And I think it's really important for us to recognize that that transparency is important for the work that we do as anti-racists. It's important to acknowledge that we are now doing this work with a central government that has explicitly chosen to remain ignorant of the issues that we are trying to tackle. It makes our work harder, but it makes it even more necessary. We have to push forward. We have to continue to work together 
we have to understand these dynamics of systemic racism and these dynamics of white supremacy that have existed long before our time and think carefully about how history is repeating itself. Asking those critical questions about what we're seeing right now and where we have been allows us to then think about what needs to change in order for us to move forward. History is a tool for analysis. Please ask those critical questions. Don't spend too much time giving your energy to that report, but acknowledge that this report is really a reflection of how the government has chosen to position itself. Our work continues, the fight continues, we continue to work together. You've been listening to Becoming an Anti-Racist, the podcast. Mm-hmm.